The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Tuesday, October 16th, 2018. From Slated to the Gist, I'm Mike Pesca. We were trying to beat him up, but he died instead. The Saudis reportedly, with those words, are admitting to what in any jurisdiction in the United States would be considered first-degree murder. And that is their cover story. Their cover story, their way out of this, is to admit to first-degree murder, killing someone in the commission of a crime. Donald Trump seems to think it's a pretty good story, this admission of murder. He has credited it. Listen to his phrasing to an interview he gave to, you guessed it, Fox News. Turkey's looking at it very strongly. We're all looking at it together, but... Turkey and Saudi Arabia are looking at it very strongly, and it depends whether or not the king or the crown prince knew about it, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Number one, what happened, but whether or not they knew about it. If they knew about it, that would be bad. Yesterday, the president was broadcasting the king's denials that the Saudis orchestrated the killings. Now he has shifted the standard to, well, did the king or did the crown prince know about it? So there you have it. Trump has just laid out the case for Saudi exculpability. Saudi agents weren't trying to kill anyone. I mean, they did. And doing so was quite helpful to the political interests of the kingdom. And like I said, in any American court, that would be an admission of first degree murder. But if you can't prove that MBS was getting real time text alerts while Khashoggi was being beaten to death, well, I guess we can just say there was murderousness on both sides, right? Both sides. Is it odd that Donald Trump would be so enthralled to the kingdom of Saudi Arabia? Well, there is the money he gets from the Saudis. Saudi Arabia, and I get along great with all of them. They buy apartments from me. They spend 40 million, 50 million. Am I supposed to dislike them? I like them very much. But there's also the style, the Saudi style. It's clearly a style Trump identifies with. Just take it from this observer of the kingdom. Here, speaking to the BBC, is in fact the late Jamal Khashoggi. I wish I could go home and take part, but the environment is not welcoming to me or any other uh, Saudi writers, economists, uh, uh, who is independent. Uh, all the people around him are yes men, and he wants that. And uh, he thinks he can do it alone. He thinks he, uh, he is uh, the leader that the country uh, has been waiting for. He alone can solve it. He is surrounded by yes men. He thinks he's the leader the country is waiting for. Geez, what does Donald Trump see in all that? So personally, as I ponder this story of the death of this one man, it's of course horrible for him and his family and an injustice, but it is emblematic not of the injustice of killing him. It's emblematic of the injustice of what his killing represents. And it's that and it's that it represents a truism. That being one victim is a tragedy and 1,000 is a statistic. Jamal Khashoggi's death is horrific, but the Yemeni war has killed thousands, thousands. Crickets, crickets, Yemen. I don't think Saudi Arabia should be an enemy of the United States, but one benefit of diplomacy and alliances is that the stronger, more powerful country should be able to exert some influence, some pressure to make the junior partner adhere to minimal norms and standards of behavior. 
if the powerful country wishes to do so. This doesn't always work, but in general, it's a way for the United States to use soft power and gobs of cash to ever so slightly nudge the world toward a place of more justice, not less. Of course, I suppose that requires the United States being led by an individual who knows or believes in at least some of those values, some of those moral values. Because that clearly is not the case, what we're seeing here is immorality as official state policy. And the Saudis are pretty dirty too. On the show today, an obit for a political pimp. But first, he's the owner of the Comedy Cellar, the high-profile stand-up club that Manny Dwarman co-founded in the 1980s. His name is Noam Dwarman, and you might have heard of him in the Comedy Cellar because Louis C.K. has been appearing there lately, perhaps, in fact, more times than has been reported. Noam has weathered a lot of criticism, and he has not ducked requests that he explain himself. So here he is to talk about his thought process and exactly how it works when a radioactive but genius comic wants to pursue his craft, and you're the guy who owns the stage. The Defender is a beautiful car, but beauty is, of course, sometimes only skin deep. Not with the Defender. Let's talk about the interior. It's robust, built with integrity. Yes, it's designed iconically, the exterior. That's what compelled me. My, my neighbor Jay says, Mike, you see what's on the block? It's a Defender. And I look down the block and indeed there is. And me and Jay the neighbor and Michelle, we gather around the Defender. We peer in the window. I have to say, I don't want to make this a too tawdry, but we lust or perhaps we kvel. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence We looked at the cargo capacity, more room for the gear. There's really a wide range of adventures. The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further. The Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com slash Defender. The Comedy Cellar is New York's premier comedy club. It wasn't always this way. There was a time when there were three big clubs and one was the Improv and the Comic Strip, which is still there and Catch a Rising Star, and then two closed and times changed. But now for at least a decade, the Comedy Cellar is the premier place. And one of the things, it was already on the map, but if if anything, cementing this in the national imagination is the fact that it's featured in the beginning of... Louis, the uh, FX show starring Louis C.K., and many of uh, Louis' sets were filmed there. And this was just telling America what people in the comedy community in New York always knew, that this was the epicenter. Well, Louis and the comedy seller are back in the news, have been in the last few weeks, as Louis C.K. is trying perhaps something of a comeback, and he does what is called drop-in sets, which are a tradition of the club, one of the reasons why people would want to go there, that anyone, even the biggest-name comics, can show up. But of course, when you have the baggage of a Louis C.K., this is fraught and comes with problems. The problems have been visited upon my guest. Noam Dwarman is the owner of the Comedy Cellar, and he's had to navigate all this. Hello, Noam. How are you? Okay, I'm very well, Mike. Thank you. Um, How of all the comics that have come through and have been important, and Jon Stewart and Colin Quinn and Chris Rock, how important was Louis to the Comedy Cellar? Well, when his show hit big and people started 
reenacting the introduction to the Louis show, you know, to send home to their friends, was it New York tourists or stuff like that, we realized it was very important, much more important than, than anything had been prior, including when Jerry Seinfeld did his documentary comedian, mostly at the Comedy Cellar, uh, a tough crowd, which was just Comedy Cellar comedians and was based on the Comedy Cellar. Yeah. But something about Louis and happening at the at the internet age and social media and all of it, this kind of perfect storm of thing, that it, it had an effect on us that nothing had ever previously. Or I don't think anything could have had yeah. previously. Do you have did you have a close professional and or personal relationship with Louis? No, not at all. Not at all. And I mean I've known Louis, I guess since the late eighties, since I was a kid in my twenties. And he's always been an aloof character. Uh, the, the most important stories about Louis, like he had some really bitter fights with my father. I think one time my father yelled at him, you're not funny or something, you know, something ridiculous like that. Um, but never, I, never denied him sets. No, like he no. would yell, you're not funny, but of course he had his spots. No, I never yeah. denied him sets. Yeah. And, and were you aware of the rumors, the factual rumors about him um, before they came out in public? I wasn't. Well, I was, not before they came out in public. I was mm-hmm. starting with Gawker. Yeah, and maybe slightly before that, it, it bubbled up at the last minute. Who was it? Somebody alluded to it. Maybe it was Tig. Somebody had alluded to it. You know, within the last two years. Yeah, whatever, and that's and that all happened. I think it, what happened was Jen Kirkman talked about a male comic doing these things, but she didn't put a name to it. Yeah, but and, that, yeah, that and then maybe at that point somebody about. attached at, at the club. Somebody might have told me that, that it's Louis, mm-hmm. and I don't know whether to take it seriously or not. But other people apparently knew these rumors for many years. Yeah. But I, I didn't. Okay. Let's talk about him coming in and doing these drop-in sets. How many has he done so far? Maybe six. Six. And I, th- I don't know that six have been reported. No, they kind of, Well, he also did Caroline's. He did uh, Governor's. He's been... Most of them have been at the cellar. And no, they, they stopped reporting each one. I mean, there's always, it's always somebody tweeting it about something, you mm-hmm. know, in some way. But. So when he comes, what's the process? Who does he have to notify that he wants to go on? Well, we, we have it a little bit more organized now than we did. So we're in communication with him, and I kind of have some idea when he's going to come. He'll tell you what a day ahead of time or two days. I, I don't. I don't want to say because I don't want to clue the mob into anything that might uh-huh. be used. But I don't want to get ahead. But then we also have this policy now where we warn all the customers: swim at your own risk. Somebody may show up that you don't like. Yes. And if they do, and you want to leave, whatever you've eaten or drink and whatever eaten or drank, uh, it's fine. Check on the house. You can go. Uh you are allowed to walk out during his set. Mm-hmm. Okay. Has, have people taken advantage of that? I, I, yes. I want to say this clearly. Have people asked for their money back? <clears throat> no, they don't pay. That's the thing. Yeah. They, at the cellar, you don't pay until you leave. Right, right. So if people said, I object, and you said, thanks for coming, and that's it. And they just leave. How many people have done that? Uh, the last two sets, zero. Mm-hmm. It depends on how well he does in his set. If he's very, very funny, mm-hmm. people will just want to stay anyway. So had one set that didn't go so well, and that set, like, there was like seven or nine people left. But that was the, uh, that was the anomaly. Maybe another set, two people left, and yeah. the last couple sets, nobody's left. Um, how'd you come to that policy? Louis wasn't the first comedian to become a little radioactive. He was uh-huh. the most famous and the most seriously radioactive. And I toyed with the idea, but it just, I'd have a little trouble, and then it would kind of fade away, so I never followed up on it. But with the Louis thing, especially uh, the, the one question when it all happened that I didn't have a good answer for is, what about these people who are upset by this and they're ambushed and they have no choice in a matter. And I had to decide how to handle that. So this became the natural way to handle it, which is to make sure that everybody knows 
It's up to you. We're not dragging you in here. I, I don't want anybody to hold me accountable for this stuff. It's, a, it's not a safe space. It's a comedy club. You may not approve. Close friends of mine don't approve. But if you come, that's the way it is. Yeah. Was there ever a thought of either with Louis or anyone else in who had been given stage time and either broke the law or transgressed in some way? Have you ever given serious thought to because of this person's morality or actions in the world, he's not going to have the platform that I provide? Have you ever thought about that? Yeah, I think about it. it's it's um I mean before this happened, people say, What about if Cosby walks in, you know? And I've tried at all to avoid going down that road as much as I can because I know that quickly I'm going to end up a hypocrite. Mm-hmm. What about, why'd you do this one? Why not that one? This one? So this gets called into mind sometimes not just with, what well, you say transgress, like if somebody has written something like really anti-Semitic on Facebook, that's happened. I, I, just, I just ignore it, you know? And there is, there's been one situation where I, I was uncomfortable about something and I did draw a line, but I never told anybody I draw a li- drew a line and I, ne- I really don't like to substitute my judgment for the audience's judgment. I, I think that's one of the reasons the club works. This is what I wanted to ask you. There seem to be different principles in tension in making the decision and, and not just yes or no, but then how to do it. What do you perceive those principles to be? Yeah, well, the, the, the biggest... Can I start with Ted Alexandro? So sure. Ted Alexandro, everybody should Google him on his anti-Louis thing. Right? Why can't we just let Louis go back to writing jokes about how men are the gravest threat to safety of women? But he, does, he doesn't just write jokes. He walks the walk. And I think that is to be commended. He's a performance artist. And Ted's a friend of mine. And I sat with him and I looked at him and I said, Ted, if you were to look me in the eyes right now, and you've heard me say this before, if you were to look me in the eyes right now and tell me that, no, I'm 15 years ago, I did something like what Louis did. I don't do it anymore. I'm ashamed, but I did it. I said, Ted, would you expect me to say, get your crap and get out of here. You don't work here anymore. And I think the answer to that is obviously no, no, that doesn't, that doesn't happen in the real world. Somebody admits something or confesses something, a, a boss gets wind of it. If it doesn't concern his current behavior, they, they, you don't throw somebody out for that. Now, he, interestingly, he would not engage on the question. Mm-hmm. He looked away like you know a, a dog looks away when there's danger. And, I, and that has been telling to me that when I make an argument like that, they don't refute it or they don't acknowledge it in some way and then integrate it. Yes, you're right, but however, like I could make the arguments. Yes, but because everybody's looking, we have to worry about the impact on Me Too that wouldn't occur if nobody knew about it. Like that could be an answer. I have an answer to that too, but that's an answer. But they won't answer at all. Similarly, like, I mean, I've been through the arguments a million times, but like, for instance, just last week, Bill Clinton's doing a new speaking tour now, right? Yeah. Has anybody come at, is anybody going to come at those venues that Bill Clinton speaks at? I, I I don't believe that they will. Now he's accused- Oh, you mean is everyone gonna um put the Apollo on blast for inviting or booking Bill Clinton? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah they're not yeah. gonna. And yeah. and Bill Clinton's credibly accused of, of rape, you know, right. and he hasn't confessed. Uh, uh Chris Brown, I mean the list is long of people who have not been held to this kind of singular standard. This this whole idea that there's a new institution of punishment, which is not criminal, not civil, not a labor hearing. But when all, if, if none of that fails that, if you can get some people to put pressure on an employer on Twitter, 
that's the way we're going to have uh, people now losing jobs. And it's happened not just to famous people. Somebody says the wrong thing. And I, who wants that kind of world? So let me uh, quote. I mean, you, you have a job. Ma- imagine you said something. Somebody found out something you said 15 years ago. Yeah. Something said to college. They start tweeting it. Slate yeah. says, oh, we, sorry, we got to let you go. It's, it's, th- that's where we're moving. And I'm trying to push back on that. I guess. But if I was chronically masturbating in front of people who didn't quite say yes, then it would be a different thing. Well, you think so? If, if you, I think so. If yeah. you, if you masturbated, we don't, we, first of all, okay, let, let's, okay, I'll take your hypothetical. I just don't want to put that hypothetical on Louis that didn't say yes. Yeah. We don't, we don't know all that, but let's presume you didn't, they didn't say yes. It's 15 years ago and you don't do it anymore. Yeah. And it wasn't in Slate's workplace. It was yeah. in a hotel room in Aspen. Yeah. And they found out about it. And, uh, you look at well, what would the courts have done, even if they could prove it. No, yeah, yeah. I'm not talking about legally. And and do you think that they would want to fire you, or they would just fire you to buckle? If the boss found out about it, but it wasn't on Twitter, the yeah. boss would say, "I need to get you out of here," in, or he just buckle to Twitter. In tooth, well, in the boss is a woman, and in 2018, I think that there'd be a good. I think that there'd be a lot of wanting to fire me. I do, because I think that you define your, I mean, in this hypothetical, you know, there's a brand and there's the what values do we stand for conversation. And especially at a place like Slate, which is different from a place like the Comedy Cellar. See, I think one of your principles is free expression and one of Slate's principles too, but like really pushing people and maybe even making them upset for a purpose, for a comic purpose. Yeah, I think that that would be a problem. I don't, I mean, I'd be, it's a, it's I'd be a, defensive, but it wouldn't shock me, and I wouldn't think it was the greatest miscarriage of justice if they didn't want to associate their brand with someone who engaged in that behavior. Because it went public. Well, who didn't make amends, who at that point seems to— They don't know if you made amends or Well, this is, the, this, this is going to lead me to a couple other questions. And one part of the criticism is that it seems like his—from what we know of his actual sets— there's no grappling with what he did. Now, I think I know a little bit about how comedy works and maybe he's building to that place and you can't get there until you try a bunch of material at a place like the Comedy Cellar. And I think that if one day he was to, and this could happen because he's so brilliant, he could someday have an act which puts out some version of an explanation or an apology or some grappling with it. Maybe people will be able to um, understand it better. So in his six sets, has he approached that territory yet? And do you think he should? Well, I've said publicly from day one that I, I wish that he would. Um, I, I didn't use your phraseology of do I think he should because um, I think that from his own interest, what would be best for him, I thought at the time that he should say something. Now, I have to tell you that when people do say these things, I'm always surprised at how much people credit them because I believe they're almost always hostage videos. Mm-hmm. When, when, so, when somebody is put under that, you need to say something. So they say it and it could be sincere, but people seem to suspend disbelief and assume that they're sincere. Like they would really like, okay, now he said, we, we got him to say it. And he said, and like, now that, now we know he's feeling differently. I would say one thing in his behalf, he's not a guy who wants to make a hostage video. I know that guy. He's like John McCain in the prison camp. He's like, I'm not, I'm not saying it. I'll, I will sit and take the torture. Mm-hmm. So I, I believe that part of it is, as he just, when he, when he does finally address it, he wants to make sure it's sincere. 
He knows what he could say. He knows, you know, he could get a PR company, write three sentences, say it, say, see, I've done it. And he doesn't want to be that guy. Yeah. Here's something that uh, Paul F. Tompkins tweeted, who's, I think, a really funny comedian. The, this is going to be harsh, but here it is. Obviously, okay. the owner of the seller, you, know him, mm-hmm. has no moral courage. So <laughs> let's the audience vote and comps them if they're upset. But lost in this is what a coward Louis is in an age when Dave Chappelle can just show up somewhere and do four-hour sets off the top of his head. Louis could book a theater and do an hour promoting it as an experimental workout, and they have plenty of willing people show up. So that's his idea. Why even use the seller? Um, well, first of all, I, I do have moral courage, and it may not be the moral, the moral take that he has on things, but there's no benefit to what I'm doing here except trying to not behave in the way that is uh, because people on Twitter or, and, and social media are attacking me. I'm very happy. Again, if I reached out to Paul F. Tompkins, I said, why don't you come down and let's, let's talk about this. Mm-hmm. There are competing principles and that's difficult, especially when a principle becomes important. Like even thou shalt not kill. Well, actually, there are competing principles to that. Self-defense, war, whatever it is, you know, yeah. uh, abortion, whatever, however you want to see. Look, I Capital know you've punishment. done First Amendment rights yeah. nights at yeah. the Comedy Cellar yeah. in your venues. So, so obviously with the First Amendment there. Right, but I give you another, like people yeah. who um, believe that if evidence is obtained improperly, they want to let the murderer go. Mm-hmm. Oh, you, you, you're, you support murderers? No, there are competing principles. And so I, I object to that. Now, as far as Louis going, and this, this, I think, look, there's a lot of talk now, just this last week about the issue of civility and whether or not it's okay to be uncivil and disrupt. And the fact is that if Louis were to put his name anywhere on a show, people would show up there to disrupt it. And this is an unintended consequence of this kind of lower and lower barrier that we have to judging people who want to be uncivil. Yeah. I could imagine a culture where people would draw a line like, we, yeah, it's okay to protest, okay, but you don't go and disrupt the show. We are not in that uh, vibe right now as a society. So, again, I would ask Mr. Tompkins, well, do you really think that would work? Mm-hmm. What do you really think would happen if Louis said, you know, come tonight, Louis C.K.? I mean, don't we all know what would happen? Is that really a fair thing? For, I mean, say what you want about Louis. Maybe he should never perform again. But that's not really going to work. All right. Noam Dwarman is the owner of the Comedy Cellar. And if you haven't booked your ticket yet, you can't because they're sold out this weekend, I'm guessing. <laughs> no, you can. You, you contact can? me. You heard me, heard me on the gist. I'll get you a ticket. <laughs> Noam Dwarman. Thanks very much, Noam. Thank you. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. And now the spiel. Ron Jeremy found him dead in his bed. He was partying the night before with Grover Norquist. He owns the place where Lamar Odom OD'd. His series ran on HBO longer than Westworld has. He was 
Dennis Huff, owner of the self-proclaimed world-famous Moonlight Bunny Ranch in Pahrump, Nevada. He was, well, and still may be, elected to the Nevada State Assembly. Dennis Hoff won the primary as a Republican, beating an incumbent, while calling himself the Trump from Pahrump. His opponent, Democrat Lisa Romanov, when informed that Dennis Hoff died this morning in his bed, or at least was found by Ron Jeremy, dead in his bed, had this to say about the passing, quote, my heart goes out to those who care about him. Just a crazy turn of events. Now it should read, my heart goes out for those who cared for him. Uh, I kind of read it like, well, if you cared about the guy, sorry. But actually, when I saw a tape of the statement of Democrat Lisa Romanoff, uh, you could tell it was really quite heartfelt. Here's a bit of that. I'm stunned. This is not the turn that I would expect, obviously. I'm just stunned. It. This is not anything that I would have ever guessed would happen. You know, if Mohammed bin Salman could muster that level of sincerity, maybe someone besides Donald Trump will believe him. Beside the fact of Ron Jeremy finding him dead and Grover Norquist, Grover Norquist attending an elect Hoff event, guess who else was there last night before Dennis Hoff, the brothel owner, died? It was Sheriff Joe Arpaio. Now, maybe you should know this about Dennis Hoff and Mr. Law and Order and, of course, pardoned felon Sheriff Joe. In Dennis Hoff, Sheriff Joe was stumping for an accused rapist. Numerous prostitutes who worked for Hoff say he raped them. The Las Vegas Review-Journal ran this quote from Jennifer O'Kane, who worked as a prostitute at Hoff's Love Ranch in 2011. Quote, my rapist is dead. He doesn't get three square meals a day. There is no more drugging other girls. There is no more raping other girls. And her allegations and the allegations of others have been public for months. So voters knew about this when they voted for them. And national political figures knew about these charges when they showed up and campaigned for him. And not just Sheriff Joe Arpaio and not just Grover Norquist. Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson wrote a chapter in Hoff's book, and according to the deceased brothel owner, made an introduction to Roger Stone, who advised Hoff's campaign. Hoff, in an interview with Rolling Stone, said he texted with Tucker daily, quote, I love Tucker and I always try to give him ideas for his show. Hoff specifically cited Carlson as an inspiration as he spoke from the stage during the campaign event last night. Now, the tape I'm going to play is from the crowd, but you can clearly hear Hoff citing Carlson as an inspiration and personally telling Hoff to just flat out rebut the allegations of rape. He said, do it. Just do it. He gave you the encouragement. He and Tucker Carlson are the guys that, when they come after me and tell the lies about me doing this, drug trafficker, sex trafficker, rapist, all that crap lies, uh, he, they're the guys go straight forward, Dennis, don't fall for the bait, don't explain yourself, you know it's lies, when the election's over with, we'll deal with them. Straightforward, don't explain yourself. That does seem to be the playbook up until, I guess, Ron Jeremy finds you dead in your bed the next day. Under state law, Hoff will remain on the ballot if he is to win the county commissions for the three counties that are 
in his assembly district will have to get together and they will be tasked with appointing another member of the same political party, which is Republican. This is not an unlikely event. Republicans rule that assembly district. Dennis Hoff was 72 years old. That's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader, who endorsed the concept of rogue killers, but specifically as it relates to the band, The Killers. Yeah, we got soul, not a soldier. It's old by now. Brandon. TJ Raphael is senior producer of Slate Podcasts. She blames rogue dillers, who are a cadre of breakaway stand-up comics who do the bits of Phyllis Diller, but don't fully commit. I blame Fang. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He came here from County Killarney, but lost the accent so as to integrate himself better with U.S. society. He did so and credits a series of audio tapes called The Brogue Killers. The gist. Are you about to write in complaining that I highlight Tucker Carlson's chumminess with Dennis Hoff without ever mentioning the fact that Chris Matthews had a summer share with Don Magic Juan? Yeah, it's selective outrage. I'll cop to it. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.